We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is returning guest Eliza Mondegrain, who speaks with me about her visitation to the U.S. PATH Conference, or the United States Professional Association for Transgender Health Conference. We started speaking with each other a couple years ago when she was following the W PATH and the EU PATH, or these different variations of the same organization, and their conferences specifically, their standards of care, and how ideology and research aren't really getting along, or even making some really strange brews up in these conferences. And so that's what we cover in this conversation. We also talk about being a woman and the the various levels of enjoyment that one derives from the status of being female. Wonderful, wonderful woman and writer and links to her work are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Eliza Mondegreen. Um, what do you want to talk about? Is there anything that we can gossip about without gossiping about? For public consumption? Yeah. Sorry, public mm-hmm. gossip. I don't know. I mean, we could... <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, you have an idea? Something pop into I, your head. I do. I just... I don't, okay. I don't know if we should reopen it. Okay. Well, reopen it. Yeah. Can you give me a hint? The blue dress stuff. We didn't talk about it. Oh, we I never talked about the blue dress stuff. Everybody wanted to know if if uh, if you still approve of me because uh, mm-hmm. because of that. Because we disagreed. Did we though? What was your stance? Um, I mean, we do disagree. I so my stance was kind of like it. The whole thing really reminded me of. Um, the the men who identify as trans who when they're talking about like bathroom access they're just like you know you'll never be able to stop us unless you like sexually assault everybody at the bathroom door and it's like that's bullshit because you know Mm -hmm. you're the one who knows that you don't belong there and you can just stay out Mm -hmm. so which is kind of how i feel about the blue dress where it's like you know if you I don't have any interest in, you know, trying to do mind reading or trying to write um, dress code policies, but I feel like, you know, you know what you're getting out of dressing a certain way in public and Hmm. that you should, like, there's just some like personal responsibility and kind of like having maybe consideration for other people. And I think it's pretty understandable. Like he didn't, you know, write a really long book that was like, when I dress up like a teenage ice skating champion and go to a gender conference in the Denver suburbs, I really get off on that. But it's a pretty reasonable inference from writing a book about getting off on dressing up like a woman. 
Hmm. It's reasonable that people would be uncomfortable about that and that you hmm. should just maybe leave it at home. Getting off on being a or getting off on dressing like a woman. Do women get off on dressing like women? And if not, so. why do they dress like women then? If they're not getting off I mean, on that. <laughs> getting off widely construed. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. But but aside from like, yeah, we do disagree about that. I was like sincerely very annoyed by multiple people asking if we were like still going to if you and I were still going to like be friends and talk. Yeah. And like what I thought now. about the things that you said, it was like, you know, go get your, <laughs> go get your friend. And it was just like, didn't we, aren't we kind of tired of this? I don't know. I thought we point. were all here because we were tired of that. It's kind of my point. Um, so we will continue to disagree about things and continue to be friends. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You just yeah. dress up however you want, Eliza Green. Well, I guess you, you're, <laughs> you are leaving at home because you refuse to leave home. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just one way to do it. I have to figure out my lighting, lighting. situation here because yeah. it's getting pretty dark. Yeah. Anyway, what else do you want to disagree about? Uh, oh, we yeah, we should figure out something to disagree about. I want to know the craziest, wacky things because that's the best part of having you on. It's like the wacky, crazy things that you find. The in wacky, your, crazy things that I find. Scurrying around in the dark recesses of the internet. Yeah. Drawing forth unspoken horrors. Or cringe, yeah. cringiest, the cringiest of the cringe, cringe. Yeah. The cringe like farmer. The two words that automatically come to mind when you talk about that are two words that I really wish hadn't wormed their way into my vocabulary from the internet, and yet they really have. And the one is like the cringe, and the other one is like cope, where it's like, oh, people are just posting cope. What is and cope? Yet, that always confuses me. Um, Cope is like, if you're like posting cope, it's like, you're trying to like deal with something not very well. So an example from like my research would be, you know, on these communities, you have like women coming on and they're saying things like, I found it to be really, um, you know, I really felt much better when I realized that like medieval knights had really slender waists and they were pretty short. And it was like, that's just cope. Like, this is like some like medieval going to like, Hmm? Wait, wh why is that? A, could you explain that to me in the, in their head? Why is that? What are they in trying to... In their heads, it's validating because it's like, okay, maybe men in the Middle Ages who were knights were also short and had girlish waists. Although they were knights. Shoulders or waists? Waists. Oh, not hips, but waists. Yeah. So is there like kind of like an odd fixation on, on, uh, on the waistline? In these I mean, there is, in these communities, there is an odd fixation on every kind of deviation from, you know, what a kind of a male typical ideal body would be. Yeah. So, hmm. this is one of the ways that female trans communities are a lot like a lot of other female online communities around like fashion or disordered eating, weight loss, all of these other things, because there's just this complete fixation on the body and what size it is and how it looks and how it looks in clothes and how other people see it. Um, and to an extent that you don't see nearly as much on the, uh, on the male trans communities 
like you, you do have people who feel insecure about the way that they look and they're, you know, they'll ask people to like say like, oh, I just need somebody to really tell me I look like a really beautiful, good girl because I got misgendered today. But the female communities will really be, um, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, height and, you know, having really delicate like hands and wrists and having small hands and small feet and round faces and like the curve of your hip and the curve of this bone and like they will fixate on any little sex difference and then there will always be people women in the comment section who come in and they're like of course you can you know they're like some really short men like jack black yeah, is he the ideal typical man yeah not until this but huh. but now he's really keeping the flame alive um <sighs> Yeah, and they'll talk about, you know, you can have men who are short and you can have men who have, you know, big hips and thighs. Yeah. You can have men who have gynecomastia and you can have men who have small hands and feet. And it's like, yeah, it's just very unlikely to have all of these things in one package and you're still female. It's interesting. And so what is the role of this confession so so there's uh, people come in and and excuse it say well there's there's other here's here's an example of a male so you're safe you're fine but is there another yeah like feedback loop of what they are achieving by by this uh processing this group processing yeah so definitely some of it is what you're saying where they're getting the reassurance of there is some real man out there in the world who has this one trait that you also have you also get the kind of mingled reassurance and like negative co-rumination of like other people saying that they feel the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, this is, uh, this just seems to be what online communities they're kind of built around a disordered identity fall into is this, like, they just become these factories of negative co-rumination. And it's like, yeah, if you fixate on something that you do not like about yourself, or something that doesn't feel good about your body or some symptom, you know, package of symptoms. And you do that around the clock with people around the world who are also mentally unwell, like you are going to feel worse. This is not a big mystery. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, to bring it back to the thing that we don't want to talk about, the Phil, Philly, uh, the blue dress, yeah. AGP gate. What I saw uh, on one level of internet discourse was a lot of people who weren't at the conference, who showed up, who spend an inordinate amount of time on Twitter co-ruminating about bad men and specifically mm -hmm. like sharing pictures of men in dresses and how evil these men in dresses are. And then just looking, being conditioned to have a very specific response to this stimulus and just having spurging out on this stimulus, like, and then they, they're just co-ruminating, co-ruminating. And because the target was adjacent to them, it wasn't just some far off man or like some abstract con concept of, you know, a guy in a female prison. Like, no, this is a guy who showed up at our team's, you know, soccer league uh, meetup mm -hmm. and the enemy is in our midst and we need to purge the enemy in our midst. And so there was this collapsing of all this negative energy onto a point like uh, not just collapsing, but like, you know, when it, when, um, when the lightning strikes, like it, it, it just this release, this discharge of all this energy mm -hmm. 
in a very confined space amidst each other, relieving a lot of negative affect by focusing it kind of semi-externally on the same thing. And it's just the same thing. It's like these people that are spending a lot of time online thinking about negative shit, just staring at bad things. And, you know, how do you not succumb to, you know, negativity yourself if that's what you kind of end up doing a lot? You know, and yeah, this is I what mean, you've I done can, a lot. I mean, everything. you are in these community communities. Uh, no, and yeah. I'm not talking about GC communities. I'm like, you are exposing yourself to these online communities. Like, it's got to be like, there's got to be like some sort of brain blood barrier that's not completely uh, mm. blocked off, like where you're absorbing this energy, this attention. How do you survive it? It's been years now. It has been years now. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, my general habit of the last two years has been to basically like I have kind of workaholic tendencies and I kind of grew up with you know parents who were like that um because they really loved what they did and I you know I feel the same way and so there's something good about that but it's also like I can Mm -hmm. only take a break if I'm like not at home and don't have my computer and I'm really not good at um I think I need to figure out some kind of like more sustainable work like that work life balance because the way that it has been working over the last two years has been that I work really, really hard seven days a week, like for four or five months and then burn out really, really hard and cash in all of my credit card points and go to Europe. <laughs> oh, okay. I see. Not, like well, I, and I've been lucky that this year I've had like a lot of conference travel that I didn't have to pay for that took me to some, you know, to Ireland and Finland and Estonia and and that definitely made it a more affordable, unsustainable pattern of burnout. <laughs> and yet you end up at these conferences where people are talking about the same thing you're thinking about all the time. No, I, but it is like, you know, that it's very different when you're with people in real life. No, it is. And you have this. Like, the energy from it is, like, it's really good. And it Gen Specked in Ireland was very beneficial. Gen Specked in Ireland was amazing. It was a very wonderful thing. Yeah. Very special thing. Yeah. And, um, and then there were, yeah, there was, there was a conference in Finland, which was really great, and a conference in New York City um, right before Denver that I went to and yeah it it's one of those things like when a lot of your research is on the internet and you're working on the internet and you're writing on the internet um you go to a you meet people in like meet space and you realize how impoverished that is as a way to relate to people yeah yeah You, you said something uh that I find interesting you said your mom and dad uh or workaholics because they love what you do and you do too. What do you love about what you do? What do I love about what I do? Um, I just, it's, I mean, it has, like you said, it's been several years that I've been researching this. Um, it's just kind of endlessly fascinating to me. And I, I don't know. I like I had a lot of these kinds of and we've talked about some of them uh, that I would just get really engrossed in a topic and read everything about it and then nothing would ever kind of come of it. And so, you know, I spent my entire 
yeah. adolescents reading about like, you know, Nazism and totalitarianism generally and like the Nazi eugenics movement and the Holocaust. And, and I felt, you know, as a teenager, like I have to understand like how this could ever happen. And I have a very similar feeling around, you know, the gender medicine in terms of just like, how did this happen? And, you know, needing to understand it and feeling hmm. that I was understanding some things that if other people knew them, that might help move things along, you know, a tiny bit. And so it's been really gratifying. Like I, you know, I was one of those people who had a diary and a live journal and um, wrote thousands of email drafts to myself and wrote a novel and then deleted it. And like, I wasn't putting anything that I was thinking and writing out into the world. And so it's been very satisfying to do that. But mostly it's just like, yeah, if you find like it, it, it is very satisfying. And I'm sure that you find this with like podcasting and interviewing people. If you find a place that is a pretty good fit for your skills and your interests and mm -hmm. it's endlessly interesting and it brings you into the orbit of people who you find really interesting and mm -hmm. what you do is appreciated. Like that's really rewarding. And that's what my parents have had with what they do. And you know, that's, that's how I feel about this. Is there an end to this topic for you that you can see? I mean, Helen Joyce said that she expected to be working on this for as long as she was capable of working. And I think that she's probably right about that. I think that the kind of the long tail of this is going to be very, very long. And I don't. I mean, I would like to see things get to a much saner place in terms of like policy and medicine. Yeah. But I also expect that, you know, we have a whole generation of young people who we have indoctrinated into this way of seeing themselves and seeing the world. And a lot of those people are going to keep clinging on to this, even if the rest of the world moves on. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's still going to be important to, you know, understand their experiences and to try to make sure that the care for them is ethical and also that the impositions on the rest of us aren't unreasonable. I don't know. Like, I don't hmm. I don't necessarily see. Um, I don't necessarily see how it ends. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You know, when uh, I spoke with Alistair... Gun Angus Fox slash slash um, the first couple times he had written a series of articles for which got published in Quillette about the lost yeah. boys and and he focused on the boys and and the parents and the boys. Um, you focused on the girls. What are these lost girls like? Where do they? It's not one dimensional. They're not all latent lesbians, right? No. Well, right. No. By a long shot. I mean, the, there's the lesbian community and how that's just com completely yeah. been desatransated. But yes. 
the, but there's a lot more than just those people. Yeah. Who, who, who are the heterosexual females that are ruminating about that? What's their profile? Yeah. Do, do you have a profile? Or like a, maybe like maybe if you can decorate, you can give me give us like a, a tea party of like the different archetypes that are at the at the tea party. That's not very gender affirming, but OK. Um, oh, swap meet. I don't know what. Yeah, swap meet. <laughs> um, beer pong. Who knows? I, I don't know what men do. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> neither do neither do most of these girls, yeah. incidentally. Um <laughs> It's really hard to like develop like so there's definitely the prototype of like a girl who is a lesbian who's always been gender nonconforming. Yeah. And for a mixture of internal and external reasons, just can't, you know, just has trouble accepting, you know, the same sex attraction and the gender nonconformity and is looking for this explanation and trans makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And those girls still exist. Um but they seem to me to be becoming an ever smaller share of the overall like female population that's getting sucked into this because gender is becoming kind of the framework through which basically every kind of like adolescent and young adult problem is being viewed. And I think like I've been really interested to watch the rise of you know, girls in these communities who, you know, they describe themselves as straight, they describe themselves as being very feminine, like absolutely stereotypically feminine mm -hmm. in terms of the way that they want to present themselves. They will talk about, you know, the long hair and the cute tops and the twirly skirts and all the makeup and the nail polish and how much they love that stuff. And either they're continuing to do it or they're looking to get back to it after they start to pass this male because they have taken enough testosterone and had their breasts cut off. So there, there's like... There is this camp of girls that has a strong attachment to femininity and they're identifying as boys and men. And it's interesting to think about like, okay, what on earth is that about? Yeah. And I think, um, I think that basically trans identity among girls is a way of saying no to all kinds of things. And the things that are, you know, being rejected really differ. And one of them is obviously like, okay, at the bottom, I think that trans identification, probably for anybody, especially for girls, is about rejecting, you know, yourself. It's rejecting your body. It's rejecting, <laughs> it's it's basically just this a total, you know, disowning of the self and your name and the way that you grew yep. up and your sex and the way that everybody else sees you. But it's also this way of rejecting the expectations that the rest of the world is putting on you that a lot of girls and young women feel really uncomfortable with. And so maybe when you say you're trans, what you're really saying is like, okay, don't see, like, maybe I want to perform femininity, but femininity gets really demonized as, you know, it's frivolous, it's trivial, it's vain, it's silly. And so I don't want to perform femininity like that. Like I want to perform it in a way where it's respected, which means that you can't see me as a girl when I'm doing it. Wait, slow down. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to, because you made me think about the other side of the coin. If if the whole trans community is supposed to get along, then these girls can't 
tell the boys who are transing that f- they're being frivolous, they're being bimbos, because like that would be mm-hmm. not affirming of the boys who are embracing the feminine. Unless they really want to be bimbos, in which case it's very affirming. Okay, and and that's an actual phenomenon. Yeah. Um, So I, I guess within the trans community, there's got to be like, there's got to be, there's got to be sex segregation because the cognitive dissonance would just get too magnified. So there is kind of a sex segregation. So if they are trying to, okay, hold on. Why do they love femininity? Like when, when they let go and, you know, do do the other cracks in it? Like just why, why is it enjoyable? Um, they do talk about, yeah, they talk about that a lot. I mean, it's pretty, it's fun, it's self-expressive. Like, these are all things that they say. Yeah, okay. Like, things that a lot of women who don't identify as trans might say. Yeah. But it's not serious. It doesn't have a bite. It doesn't have a... Right. It doesn't express the totality of their will in the world. Hmm? Yeah, and they want... I mean, it's... This is a... I think the trans identification... When paired with femininity is like, I want to perform femininity, but I also want to control the way that you see me performing femininity and what you take away from it. Okay. I mean, it's kind of all about controlling, you know, you're trying to control Mm. the way that what you do is interpreted by everybody else. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, I mean, when we're talking about heterosexual girls identifying as gay boys, and pursuing what they call gay male relationships, which with, you know, straight guys. Um, I think that they are in large part, you know, they're saying, okay, on some level, I'm attracted to men. I want to have a sexual relationship with a man. And I don't want it to be like, you know, a male female relationship with all of those dynamics. And maybe with the things that porn has attached to it, maybe with just the kind of inbuilt inequalities around, like, women really got the short end of the stick. And this is kind of a way to run away from it in terms of, like, the burden of, you know, sex and human reproduction. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. And in all of these cases, it's like, Hmm. trans identification is saying, like, don't see me like that. Like, don't think about me that way. Don't put me in that kind of relationship. Don't interpret me performing femininity as frivolous or as an invitation to be objectified or all of these different things. Hmm. That's what I think is going on. And in their pursuit of not being associated with uh, objectification, they end up objectifying like the the, the soft bone on the, the slender wrist yeah. and they hyper objectify. Right. I, yeah. That is one of the many interesting, like, this didn't quite work out the way that it was supposed to. Yeah. What about the, what about the guys, um, who end up with, um, masculine women, but they're in a straight relationship? Like what, do you have any insight into that? Or I guess you you probably have insight. Do you mean masculine women or do you mean trans-identified women? Uh, I guess heterosexual females of Gen Z or whatever this generation, we're talking about a generation. This is a generational uh, phenomena. So this generation, whatever we want to call it, um, there's this, there's this cohort of trans-identified 
heterosexual women who want to be perceived as gay boys and yep. then enter into heterosexual relationships with straight men, but straight men still have certain tastes for femininity and probably certain sort of like ambivalence towards masculinity and dress. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just assuming that the sex, the gender, you know, kind of, I mean, peacocky kind of like, you know, the signifiers of that are still there and you can't just deny like your aesthetic proclivities. Right. But remember that a lot of these girls are still very feminine. Okay. And may or may not be taking testosterone, may or may not be having surgeries. Mm -hmm. Even if they're insisting that they're gay men and that their partners think of themselves as gay men. So they kind of recreated like some sort of Grecian pederasty, like where they're like kind <laughs> of just like these, they're little boys. And so they're with mm, men in the middle. No. Now. No. No, I don't think so. Um, they recreated heterosexual relationships. With extra steps or not? With the, with varying numbers of extra steps. Yeah. So how do they navigate yeah. like a man like wanting, being more attracted to them when they're feminine than masculine and yet still wanting that, that affirmation? Because I'm sure it feels good to be adored. I, that's one thing that I know about most women. They they really like enjoy. Really it's like an enjoyable. It's a yeah. it's an enjoyable thing. I'm I'm not putting you down I mean, for think, it. I mean, doesn't everybody like love to be adored? I don't. You love if, to be adored. Don't, don't don't just don't call me cute in public. Just don't call me cute in public. I'm 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 virile. I'm hard to handle. <laughs> um, I can so hear I think the comments. It, so right with the now. caveat that I think everybody likes to be adored. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But it gets back I, to why do women dress like women? There's something about them, and it's not like a male sexuality. So when we say they are, it's not necessarily that that a woman is getting off on being pretty. But there's something enjoyable, maybe not in the particular way that a man finds things enjoyable, but there's mm -hmm. still some sort of self affirmation, enjoyment of one's femininity as a female. That is based on one's sex. That doesn't necessarily have to be erotic or sexual, but it's still based on sex. So it's still an out, an expression but, of that. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of getting away from these girls. The thing that I was going to say was, um, I mean, they're talking all of the time on these communities about, like, one of the biggest forms of obsession is, okay, does my male partner to really think of himself as gay and really see me as a man? And they will present all kinds of evidence to the contrary. Okay. Like, there was one of the posts that's part of my uh, thesis, um, like keyword search data, is it's a girl talking about her feeling bad that she has, like, that she doesn't have the equipment that her gay male boyfriend would really want, even though he tells her that he actually prefers what I have because it's quick and easy. And it's like, this is just a straight man. Yeah. Yeah. Who's adapting to the situation because it's quick and easy right. to just give her what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're totally gay. I mean, no, 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 no. I mean, he's literally like, by quick and easy, he means like he's talking about her vagina and that he prefers Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about penis. like the identity. It's much easier for him in order to get access to the vagina to accept the identity and play along with the game. Because that's just yeah. like what he has and to do Yeah, and I think that there's adapt. a lot of that going on. 
Yeah. And I, I, like my suspicion is that this is a particularly vulnerable population of like young women because they are so disconnected from their own bodies. Mm -hmm. They're disconnected from older women who they think don't understand them. Mm. They're disconnected from, um, you know, women's health information and resources and having relationships with the kind of men who are happy to pretend to be gay men to hook up with them they often like and sometimes it's funny and they will be like oh he can't find like why can my gay male partner not find my my like testosterone dick by which they mean the clitoris and it's like not a new problem Women know all about this. Um, and sometimes it's really not funny and they'll be talking about things like uh, they seem to be have, like unprotected sex and pregnancy risk and thinking testosterone is a form of birth control and like that they are not taking certain precautions yeah. because they feel like they're men or they want to be seen as men or it's not, you know, whatever is going on. It seems like a very like potentially a very high risk population in terms of like putting themselves in bad sexual situations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do we, have you come across this, just a question that's coming out of the blue, but have you come across the, uh, any studies about the impact of exogenous testosterone on fetuses? Um, I mean, that one it can't be good, right? <laughs> It feels like it can't be good. I I haven't particularly. I came across that. I think it was, I think it advertised itself as a medical ethics paper about not favoring healthy pregnancy outcomes over personal yeah. gender identity and need to keep taking testosterone through pregnancy. Yeah. And that was pretty fucked up. So... I mean, it's, it's selfish, it's uh, risky, like you're saying, but also it's just shallow. How can these, how can these men and women deepen their relationship or where, where does the relationship head if it, if it's, if it has to go through this, this loop, this identity loop, this gender yeah. identity loop? Like, is there, when, when one, have you, have you noticed any yearning for F deep spiritual fulfillment or gratification of, of a personality like you know developing into itself at the end of like this trans identifications like I'm, I'm using this to to become a male or to figure out like my relationship to the world but do they ever kind of like become like do they ever want to become like a Caesar or an Augustus or a Napoleon do they ever want to like be heroic and Nietzschean do they ever like go in that direction I don't know, but it doesn't really, the concerns of the communities that I study are so, you know. And you probably um, wouldn't get that data because they would probably face out of the community because the community's focused right, on. Which is the other thing I was going to say, like okay. somebody who was really kind of like maybe self-actualizing generally and making progress in life probably wouldn't be spending all their time on this community. Hmm. That probably includes me as a researcher. <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> hey i you got to admire we 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 certainly admire your self awareness uh -huh. eliza montegrin um what what happens yeah. when the cracks show and the person starts to move away from the community but does not yet feel like they have permission to if that's the right framework yeah um 
So it's interesting. The kinds of things that seem to push people out of trans identification often very, very slowly. Um, one of the biggest ones is just kind of running into the limits of what transition has to offer and realizing that it's just not enough. So this will often, and you can often see this, you know, from people who are very new in the community and it's like, okay, I feel like this is a seed that's going to grow over time. Where they'll be talking about like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'll never be a real man, even if I, you know, have all of these surgeries and do all these things. Mm-hmm. That feeling is probably going to grow over time as you continue to take steps to appear more like something, that gap between like appearing and being is probably going to be more bothersome. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who can live with that. Those seem to be the people who are the happiest with transition is, you know, they can accept that it's a limited offering and they're okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are not okay with that. And that's going to be why they just detransition. I also think, um, and this is very related, uh, the sense of being an imposter or a fraud, or like you were talking about, um, that desire to have the kind of relationship that you can't have if it's based on pretend that I'm something that I'm not seems to push people out over time. They just get tired of it. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in my research, there will be people who say, you know, they transition seven, eight years ago, they've had all the surgeries, they've been on testosterone for all of this time. And, and they'll say, you know, they don't know how to relate to people or they feel like a cardboard cutout compared to other people (laughs) in terms of what they're able to present to the world or that they, you know, that they feel like they're lying to everybody all the time. Yeah. And people will say this when they're still trans identified. And then when you look at what detransitioners say, they're often talking about exactly that feeling. Like it felt like I was lying to myself and I felt like I was lying to everybody else. Yeah. And that just wasn't the way that I wanted to live the rest of my life. Yeah. So it's, it's very tempting to kind of plot people on that trajectory Hmm. when you're reading, you know, kind of their, their earlier misgivings along those lines, because it's just, it's such a familiar, um, trajectory. And are the responses to keep the community isolated or insular? uh, There's only so many responses that can be made. Have they adapted over time? So, I mean, the basic response is, you know, it's the same same basic template for responding to doubts within these communities as it is, you know, when you're talking about like the field of gender affirming care and when people who are providing that care have doubts, which is basically like, okay, you have these doubts and it's your responsibility as a good trans person or as a good gender affirming provider to overcome those. And you're going to work through it and you're going to fake it until you make, you know, like, like it really, it really is. Um, And the reason that I wasn't at Genspect was that I was at um, the US PATH conference that was at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was really, um, it was the third conference like that that I've been to. And it was just really interesting as kind of like, you know, yet another case study of how are these people thinking about the work that they're doing and how are they managing, you know, the evidence that's coming in that one might normally think is a little bit discouraging. Um, and yeah, 
I mean, there were some really fascinating sessions. Like there was a much stronger focus on um, public relations. Mm. There were three sessions that were devoted to public relations. And As opposed to uh, the previous two, the uh, what was it? Epath or uh, it was Wpath yeah. and yeah, and, and then the European, so the world version, the European version, and now the U.S. version. Yeah, um, and it does make sense that the U.S. version would be the most PR focused. First of all, because we're shallow, but second of all, because no, like it's really embattled here right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, with legislation, politicization, uh, social yeah, media. The, yeah. So, so it was a lot of like how to deal with the politicization, politicization. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, there were sessions where they were talking about, they had done message testing around like gender affirming care and kids and, you know, how do people see that? And the guy who was doing the session, he was just like, when normal people hear gender affirming care they think trans kids in the driver's seat and that's really scary for them he was like even though you know we think trans kids in the driver's seat is great but like not everybody thinks that and and he's like so that makes people very nervous and so when you're talking about this you should say like it's medically necessary care it's essential medical care it's prescribed medical care and okay. necessary say, like, essential and and prescribed prescribed huh Go and that on, you should avoid yeah. details. Avoid details. Like, like, uh, yes. like what kind of details should people... Um, avoid details about procedures. Avoid details about ages. Like 12-year-olds getting mastectomies is not something you want to bring up at the cocktail party. You don't really want to. People will see that the wrong way. Uh, they'll see that the wrong way. Yeah. So is there is there any movement for uh, these people to proselytize that this is the right way to see this thing? It's just it's rather just don't look at it. Don't mention it. It's I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of like it's proselytization, but on the level of like platitudes and not <laughs> because they don't really trust the public to go along with the specifics. Why? Because they, they're counter common sense. Right. Because we have not been indoctrinated enough to go along with the specifics. Like, yet? Yet. Okay. So they definitely like, they definitely don't want to say things like, well, you know, we performed a gender affirming chest masculinization surgery on 12 year old transmasculine boy, because normal people are going to look at that and be like, oh, you cut a 12 year old's breast off? Yeah. That doesn't or seem great. We've, uh, hobbled for life the ability of this male's uh, the, the this male's ability to have an orgasm before he yeah. ever even had an orgasm we, we take we took that away from right him. like we took that away from him like those things just do not but he's just good asexual well now he is but yes and that is exactly like i think that that's a big part of the push for um asexual recognition is like we're having all these people who are going to be like pharmaceutically and surgically harmed and we want to pretend that it was this innate orientation that they had. And so we didn't do anything wrong. They were just asexual. And that's how we got to eunuch gender. That's how we got right. to eunuch gender. Because that's right. basically what this is. It's this pretty is dark. Eunuch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So and there was a session. What's the tone oh, of the guy? Like that, like, like when he's talking about, like, are they, are they worried? Like, do you have like this thing? It's like, okay, how, maybe, maybe, maybe we painted ourselves into a corner here. They're just no, like, no, no, okay. it's, it's, it's really like, 
So I was just reading Thomas Sowell's Vision of the Anointed, and it's really like the anointed talking about the benighted, where it's like, we get it, and we know why this is really important. But the benighted don't know why this is really important. And so we have to tell them, he literally like referred to normal people as like dinosaurs, and he was like, the dinosaurs are scared. Like, we shouldn't, you know, don't scare the dinosaurs. Well, and what that means what? is, <laughs> if they you know, it. deceive the dinosaurs. If they throw a a world sized cocktail of hormones and uh, uh, sterilization surgeries at the dinosaurs, they will go extinct. So I mean, it's not a it's not an inaccurate inaccurate mm-hmm. metaphor. Yeah, there was this one of the other PR sessions. Um, the person who presented it, who uh, who is one of those men who identifies as a woman, who identifies as, like, a really sassy woman, but just comes across as a really, like, hostile, mentally ill man. <laughs> um, which made it kind of hilarious. He was, like, he was talking about his advice for dealing with reporters. And he was like, don't lie. If you don't want to answer a question, you can just say, you can just use my favorite thing and say, let me get back to you. And it's like, but that's a lie. <laughs> Let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. Well, I mean, well, that, but that, that does show that they're aware, or maybe that's showing that journalism is starting to, to, to go to, to address Lisa Selene Davis's contention, which I'll, I'll put up on my channel, but it's on the GenSpec channel about why has the mainstream media refused to report on this? And they have across mm-hmm. the board refused. And when they do, it's been positive. And when it's negative, they they triple or quadruple the positive um so yeah. they are complicit but it's still like you know you can't stop the questions from coming you can't stop the stories because there's a story here and eventually the story gets told whether or not the storytellers yeah. are bought and paid for the story is going to get told yeah yeah so but you know don't lie just deceive people don't lie <laughs> Don't lie about what, like, what, 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 did did they bring up informed consent? Did you see any things about informed consent? I mean, there were a lot of discussions about informed consent generally, not really in the PR. Okay. That would be like getting into details that you don't want to get into. In in PR. Yeah. They said, um, at one point the guy said like, what was it? It's like, they're trawling our websites to use our knowledge against us. Wait, what? These people just have a problem with reporting. Um, <laughs> They're trolling? Trolling or trolling? Trolling. Trolling, yeah. Our websites. To, to use... use our knowledge against us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, on the question of informed consent, yeah, this came up a lot. Okay. It's interesting. It's a big one. Because um, this, this is one of the one we, like, when we, when we look at what's um, coming out of Sagam... And GenSpec, mm-hmm. but Sagam specifically, the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, who are looking for the data, not, not even looking at, but looking for the data, because there's not enough data yeah. to stand on for like the, like the mass sterilization of a, of a generation, just to yeah. put it out there. If anybody doesn't know that, like we don't know what we're doing or they don't know what they're yeah. doing. Um, but once you start to say, well, where's the data? You're like, well, how can we even have informed consent if we don't have the information? Yeah. So, they weren't dealing with that side of it. Oh, so 
there's still like that's over there. I love this because I don't know if people, insofar as people have listened to our conversations over the last year and a yeah. half or two years, like you, you've you've talked about at this W path at the path places the. Um, there's this, there's this thing in the room that like, you have to not talk about when you talk about, you have to talk about in very specific ways. Yeah. Like there's this, like this Lovecraftian like gate, you know, and you're not supposed to talk about Cthulhu and every once in a while, like the tendrils kind of snake. I'm sorry. I'm playing Lovecraft game right now with the boys. Um, right. So, and that's there like, and, and you're describing that like, so informed consent. We have to talk about so how do they talk around that? Um so informed consent is one of many topics where my sense is that there's an attempt to like have the appearance of like responsibility and the appearance of doing science without actually doing it. And so they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're gonna talk about informed consent because informed consent is really important. But what they mean by dealing with the problems with informed consent is how can you get any patient, no matter where they're starting from? to consent so that you can say that you were responsible. And there was a session where they like modeled how to get a patient who was, um, and I actually wrote this down because I I didn't want to forget all of the comorbidities that they gave this. I really pray to God, hypothetical patient, Um, a schizophrenic patient who has autism, borderline personality disorder, is intellectually disabled, had a psychiatric hospitalization in the last year, identifies as a demiboy who wants a hysterectomy and a phalloplasty. And they were like, so let's just role play how we can, you know, ensure that we're getting informed consent with this patient. Yeah. And they talk about the kind of problems that they run into, like maybe the patient doesn't really understand why the surgeries can't happen all at once, why it has to happen in stages. Um, Maybe they're concerned that, you know, the patient has autism, what does this mean to the patient? Um, Maybe they're concerned, is it a delusion with schizophrenia? And the way that they played out the scenario was not actually navigating the possibility that the patient might have an impairment that would affect their ability to consent. Instead, it was like, actually, the schizophrenia, like they didn't really have it. Maybe it was just a misdiagnosis. And maybe it was just kind of an artifact of the gender dysphoria. And then when the patient didn't understand why we couldn't do the hysterectomy and the phalloplasty at the same time, then we just explained that you couldn't and then the patient understood and then the patient consented. So it was like there were no real barriers. And the basic like takeaway from this, I think for doctors is that the onus for informed consent is on the clinician. And if you cannot get to informed consent with a patient, it's because you failed as a clinician not because sometimes we shouldn't do this because patients can't understand it and can't consent. Much less, nobody can consent because nobody understands it. So I, I want to come up with a new word that takes the word nice and Nazi and puts it together like <laughs> nices or something like that, nicey. Um, yeah. Because it's the same eugenic relationship to the human being. Uh, where the human being is this object that needs to be corrected because they're wrong some way or the, the world, the, you know, we don't like them. There, there's kind of like a disgust, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, but they're doing I mean, the same procedures. 
but it's all about they're niceness. doing the same procedures it's, on the same population like they are sterilizing yes people that we would have sterilized for eugenic reasons in the past but now yes. we're doing it for identity reasons so it's new like it's woke eugenics it's like new it's eugenics woke eugenics but it's just not they're not they're being nice i guess i guess the the old, nice. eugen, the, the old eugenicists were being nice too because they're just thinking long right. term like we right i mean most certainly the eugenics movement early in the 20th century was a progressive movement that understood itself to be working on behalf of like bettering the human race and preventing mm -hmm. suffering and doing all of these you know it was like a social justice movement then we got the nazis um but i think we forget that it understood itself that way and like yeah this movement also understands itself to be this therapeutic humanitarian movement Sometimes the packaging doesn't match what's on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we were talking. I think you were on this call. We were on a mutual call, and somebody was talking. I don't know. May I have to cut this out? But somebody was talking okay. about they're reading a book about the Nazi uh, sex, um, or why there was a bunch of sex research in Germany, and it turned oh, out pre, that that was all yeah. that was all destroyed. And it might be the case, or like I heard, like it might be the case that be, that's because a lot of the upper echelon of the Nazis were actually patients yeah, of this procedure would, or something like that. I mean, I would like to read that. I mean, there's all of this mythology that has grown up around that kind of Institute for Sexual Science. Yeah. That, yeah. And, um, and it's, you know, it's kind of at the heart of the like trans people being victims of the Holocaust. Mm. Crazy pants revisionist history stuff um why does so, it yeah we were on a why are they in the middle talking about that I would like to you were just talking mm -hmm. today there, there was this tragic event that happened where there's 14 women that were slaughtered yeah. for being women in like right close to where you are up in the great white north and yeah. how that's being appropriated by the trans lobby is like this is an important part of our mythos because yeah. we are the victims Like it just, it just yeah. means, I, I mean, I guess they have so many days of remembrance that maybe they're misre misremembering at this point because they have to just keep on filling in the blanks here. But yeah, days of misremembrance. Yeah. Good. I mean, when you were trying to manufacture a history of oppression for a group of people who didn't exist until, you know, certain theories of sexology and queer theory and medical technology existed, you have to steal other people's. Yeah. histories of like oppression and marginalization yes and that's what's happening um the particular case that you're talking about it's the day after the anniversary of the polytechnic shooting in montreal where 14 women were killed um who were studying uh some kind of um information technology they were they, they were like in a predominantly male field they were killed by a man who shot them after instructing all of the men to leave the room. So they were just killed for being women. And for the last three years in, across Canada, um, memorials have invited uh, men who identify as women to be keynote speakers and to make it all about them. Mm -hmm. But they would have left the room. They would have had a sudden identity revelation. Well, temporary. Uh, that's where the fluid comes from, I guess. Puddling right. around their ankles. Yeah. Um, but
But there's there's an aspect of this identity, at least on the public stage, that needs oppression to solidify itself. Yeah. Does do you see that in these professional organizations? And and we kind of skipped away from something very disturbing that you talked about, and I just want to reiterate that you were talking about a test case where this is obviously somebody who cannot, like a mentally disabled, schizophrenic autist, autistic, borderline, borderline. Like this is the the last person in the world that should be receiving sterilization, dressed up as liberation, and a phalloplasty. A phalloplasty, which is a very crude, we're going to take flesh off of you and paste it on to another part of your body. Right. And almost everybody who has it is going to have a complication or a series of complications. Yeah. yeah. One of the most like absolutely barbaric of these procedures. Done to one of the most, like, like if you put every vulnerability into a bucket, you would be describing this test case. You would and get still, this, yeah, this patient. And still they try to figure out a way... Yeah. And the way that they it, they really treated it like and then we realized that this barrier was also a social construct. So it was fine. And it was so like, all oh, of shit. these all of these oppressions, like literal, like like vulnerabilities, yeah. not necessarily oppressions, but like deficiencies of capability yeah. were disregarded in order to liberate them through the process of gender affirming care or like, like how, what, what, what did you get a sense of yeah. why gender was the most important thing to happen to this vulnerable? I mean, they never come out quite and say it, but it's like that the assumption is just like, that is who the patient really is. And therefore everything else is subordinate to the reality of the patient's identity. Yeah. Yeah. And where did that identity come from? Not society. Right. It comes from the inside somehow. And it changes sometimes. But you should definitely affirm it in line with whatever the patient feels right now, no matter what the patient is going through. Yeah. And you see this. I mean, yeah. Kids in the trans kids in the driver's seat. And I mean, you see this with the clinicians and you see this online where, you know, a lot of these young people online will be talking about potential alternative explanations for why they feel the way they do and why they want to transition. And they will be very explicit that these are other possibilities. Like this isn't me projecting that onto them. They'll be like, sometimes I think that maybe this is because I was like sexually abused when I was five or six years old. Yeah. And then by the end of the post, they'll come around and they'll be like, but you know, deep down, I know that I'm just a trans person who happened to be sexually abused when I was five or six years old. Oh. Oh. And the clinicians treat it the same way where they'll be like, I mean, of course, a person could be transgender and have an intellectual disability. And of course, a person could be transgender and be psychotic. But they're not psychotic about being transgender. I guess apparently you can be psychotic about everything other than being transgender. That's real. And they, they it's just, they have no choice but to do that. Like, it seems like, like the if you look at mm-hmm. the psychology of this, well, we can't define what a trans person is. So if we make up, and, and, we know that the trans kid exists, but we don't know how to like accurately. So, I mean, right? They, they didn't change the guidelines mm-hmm. where they they don't know. They can't. Yeah. They can't say. There's no test for it, but it's there. And if you're doing that to children, then why don't you just like recreate a child uh, and put it in an adult body? Say they're mentally deficient, autistic, you know, very self-obsessed, psychotic. Like you're just describing yeah. a child with with uh, another hundred pounds on them, right? Yeah. So if we're going to do it to children, we have to do it to to 
this thing. Like it just seems like there's so it's so I mean, it's rich like for some no, sort of. There's no barrier, yeah. and that includes age, and that includes. Well, it's not just there's any... no barrier. Like it's they're like they're attracted to the thing in the room that you can't say. And so it, it just kind of pops out of their psyche. I'm being kind of like union, yeah. kind of like there's this dream world where, where they're manifesting this demon. Yeah. No, there like there there is this kind of like, oh, that was a very telling thing to say. They're like, I don't know. Um, so how does was, how does oppression work into it, or how does the social does it, or are they able to? Is it all a mixture? Are they able to keep all these different things? clean between activism and medicalization and no i mean they really do see themselves as this vanguard within medicine and within society and a vanguard you know they have this special knowledge and so they have they're blessed in this one sense and then they're persecuted in this other sense because nobody else understands them so that kind of mix of like, okay, we're the anointed, we understand this, and the persecution of being misunderstood by other people who want to shut you down because they think that you're sterilizing kids, even though you are. Like, those things, you don't get one of those without the other. And that's kind of what the conferences are hmm. built around. Um, and they just like, they can't take it. They just can't take the criticisms that they face seriously. Like, the conference opened with, the outgoing president making a joke about puberty blockers. Not a good joke, like a very, very, very belabored joke where he was like, um, he's like, the U.S. Path Organization is like this many years old and you could say that we're, you know, kind of in our adolescence and maybe we were puberty blocked for a few years there, but now we're back on track. We're Tanner stage five and people laugh politely because it was like not quite a joke. It was definitely meant to be a joke. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, blocking brain development. Really funny. <laughs> we don't know. Right. We don't know. Right. Like, we don't know. I mean, it might, it might turn out to be hilarious. Um, no, I mean about like, like, re, like literally mentally retarding children by putting them right. on puberty blight. It's likely. Right. I think, but we don't know. But we don't know. It's it's like a tremendous risk, but there it's a joke that people would be concerned about it. Yeah. Because of course we would do this. And um I don't know. I mean it's it's a weird conference because like there was there was like a two-spirit person who read a really long, terrible poem. And there was um like there were people introducing themselves as like kinky masculine of center people. Kinky masculine of center? Yeah, it sounds like a political uh, leaning. Yeah, I mean it is right. Like, what's a political leaning? Yeah, it's like a um, nudist who votes for DeSantis, basically. Right, masking the center. Uh, they talked about a uh, rectal progesterone fandoms. Wait, what? Mm -hmm. What is that like a suppository? Well, fandoms, kind of. I, it's an interesting use of the word fandom. Unfortunately, it's not a euphemistic use of the word rectal. Um, okay. No, it's like these online communities that are like, they think that you'll have more feminizing effects if you inject progesterone into your rectum. Yeah. Because it goes into you would, the prostate, right? I, you know, I 
didn't actually try to listen that hard to that session because okay. you fade out. Even you, even you have limits. I have, I have Eliza some limits. Eliza Green. Yeah. Okay, um, so you you kind of you kind of indicated that there's seeds of people like the girls moving out. Hey, you've mm. been doing this for a few years now. You've gone to these conference conferences. Sometimes you dress up and you're where in the world is Carmen San Diego, like uh, yeah, covert ops disguise, yeah. uh, Bond girl kind of thing going on. But um, do you notice like migration out of that? Do you notice like people like backing away? I mean, they probably wouldn't be there. Like the people. I know who were part of that world who have pretty serious concerns. Like those people aren't going to those conferences okay? and they wouldn't be welcome there. And it's more like what it looks more like to me is you have, a, you know, the kind of dynamic that you have when radicalization sets in, which is the people who are more loosely attached. And in this case, you know, more sane are getting kind of shaken off and everybody else is getting drawn like deeper into this vortex of, you know, insanity. Um, and one of the ways that that's manifesting is basically like the kind of steady, I would call it like the they themification of gender medicine, which is ever more of the practitioners either come into this area of medicine because they already identify as trans or they come to identify as trans. So hmm. when I first started going to these conferences, there were a lot of women who would call themselves like cisgender. And now you know, at the last one that I was at, I think a lot of women who were probably cisgender a year ago are now like she, they. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it has a lot of benefits. Like it makes you part of the uh, gender family. Yeah. That's what they call it. And um, it means that you're not an oppressive, bad cis person. You're like an insightful member of an oppressed community. But you got your she going on. So you're part of the both worlds. Well... And the really important part is the they, but the fact is they look exactly the same yeah. as they did a year ago. Do you see them starting to medicalize? Uh, I don't think a lot of those are going to. I mean, there are a lot of, I think there are a lot of people who identify as transgender who have medicalized who are part of this area of medicine. And that, you know, they're going to have both a kind of a professional and a personal barrier to reconsideration of what they're doing i don't i think that for a lot of the people who are kind of like shifting their identification over time that it's not going to turn into medicalized yeah but it's like it's you know whether it's a conscious strategy or not it's very convenient to come to see yourselves in those terms i yeah convenient maybe even inevitable which is Seems yeah, like I mean, if you really it. believe this stuff, you are not going to be, you know, a boring cisgender person. If you really believe it, like you're going to be trans. What about the males, heterosexual males in this movement? Um, the professionals. There's also a little bit of he theification, but it's it's much less notable. I mean, there are fewer. It's kind of like this is happening among the kind of under 45 female workforce and the under 45 male workforce is much smaller. Like it's, it's a very feminized at lower levels in particular, it's a very feminized uh, field. Mm -hmm. 
And especially when you put all of the, like the social workers and the counselors and things like that into it. Yeah. 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 But I'm sure you have a few rock stars, ambitious men who see this as their oh, yeah. moment. I mean, I, I think Jack Turbin is still a he, him. Turbane. Who knows? What? Jack Turbin. Yeah. He's famous. Famous for blocking everybody. Yeah. You know, I realized kind of where a lot of the expectations for um, how other people will react to the way that you express gender come from, which is there was this session about cosplaying and how the person who was presenting had come to realize that they were transgender through cosplay and dressing up and like walking on a convention center and being like people would like come up and like thank her for, you know, making these kind of daring gender plays on these characters and it's like oh this is kind of what you want in real life except it's not a cosplay convention because we're not all weirdos are you calling cosplayers weirdos yeah i i think they're significantly Absolutely. less weird than the people that we're talking about at this conference u.s path conference I, it seems like a slippery slope to me mm. well I, I hope the furries in the audience take that with a grain of salt <laughs> How many, what, what percentage of your audience do you think are furries? Uh, probably. More or less than 50%. Less than 50 is probably certain. Yeah. Less okay. than 50%. You should work on that. We should get, get, know. get into the, no, I, 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 you know, furries are, furries are fun. Furries are fun. Um, yes. there's a couple out there lurking. Yeah. Um, so anyway. is the landscape changing? I mean, I think we don't, so in the US, I'm not really sure, like what are the effects of um, the presidential election where this is pretty clearly gonna be a big issue. I don't know what that's gonna, what effect that's gonna have. My concern is that it's going to, you know, whenever something gets politically polarized, it makes it harder for the people who are on the wrong side of that issue to back down. Mm -hmm. And my concern is that's what's going to happen to the Democrats um, and that Republicans are going to own the opposition to this even more clearly than they already do in the U.S. But um, but on the other hand, like, I, you know, I'm a big believer in visibility. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen this with public polling as the public gets a better sense of what's being expected from trans activists. They don't like it like they you know the way that it breaks down is people are very they're willing to be to play along to a certain extent but they never forget that they're playing along and so they're like yeah of course like we don't think you should be discriminated against employment and housing and all those other things but like we don't think that you're literally women we don't think you belong in single-sex spaces we don't think you belong in women's sports we don't think we should do this to kids like the general public the more they know the more they seem to come down in a pretty sensible place of like toleration for adults to have strange beliefs about gender and like common sense approach to like public policies. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that, well, I think increasing polarization is inevitable that the visibility will just help to deflate this thing. Cause when people see this, they don't like it. I don't know if the polarization I think it's rapidly decreasing. 
Okay. I I think because the polarization was driven by the regime, um, I just don't see it. I, I I think I don't know. I just have a sense, but I I have no data at all that that people are getting tired of the polarization, and when okay. one side continually, um, let's just say. Um, supports hoodlums burning down cities in the name of saving the people in the cities and, um, you know, uh, supports, uh, abduct or children running away to other States and then medically and surgically altered. Um, it takes a lot of reeducation to see those things. It's really hard to be seen. Yeah. And, and I think that people are, I don't know. I, I think if people are like, well, you know what, if, if I was told that these were the evil people, um, by the people who are actually supporting the evil thing, maybe maybe we're not as different. Maybe the Trump supporter is not as evil I as I was led to believe. That. You know, if if the people I mean, are I telling think, me that, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I do see something about that where, like, as more and more people find themselves on the wrong side of this issue mm-hmm. because they don't think that we should cut teenagers' breasts off, for example, or you know, give female sports to males. Um, maybe it will help. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it'll help depolarize overall because a lot of the, a lot of people who have been unfairly demonized and a lot of pretty reasonable positions that have been unfairly demonized. Mm-hmm. Once you find yourself on the wrong side of the line, you kind of have to reevaluate who you're standing over there with, and yeah. you're still going to disagree with some of those people, but maybe you can talk to them in a way you couldn't before. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of easier to walk back being wrong if you were shamed by the people who were you were shamed out of your side you know if you're like if they shamed you it's easy like that's a good cover it's like you know what they're assholes and maybe i was wrong maybe i was wrong a lot about other things and maybe i'm not completely right but maybe i am right on some things and right on others but maybe i don't have to be completely maybe i don't think that everybody that i was told was wrong as as wrong as i was told or as i even thought it it you know you get you get shamed and that takes the place of needing to be humbled for being wrong. Maybe, you know what I'm trying to say? You know, like that kind of like, uh, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Not that. Well, wait, just say it. Just say it again. Okay. A little differently. So, okay. Say you were wrong about an issue. Say like, say you thought you're walking down the corridor, you know, and, you know, Trump gets elected and you're like, oh my God, the world's going to crap. And everybody around you is like, the world's going to crap. And plus trans kids exist. And you're like, yeah, trans kids exist and the world's going to crap. And I hate Trump. And then, you know, you're like, oh, there's a Trump supporter. They probably want to kill me, you know? Um, and then you're like, wait, what is a trans kid? Don't ask that question. And you're like, wait, what is a trans kid? You know, and, and you're like, oh, yeah. I supported trans kids. But then I realized like what a trans kid is a surgically altered, probably gender nonconforming, probably even gay person that was going to resolve naturally through this thing. It wasn't actually a category and yeah. is now living a life of, you know, uh, you know, not the best life because this concept of the trans kid the, if you were wrong about a trans kid and and you supported the mutilization of children let's just say but you and you were kicked out of your tribe yeah for that you might that might like being being shamed might take care of like that like the avoiding of being humiliated keeps people from walking back certain things but if you're humiliated by the people who are your friends and cast out of that and shamed that might absorb some of that 
like humiliation of like being wrong. Yeah. I'm, I feel like I can, there's a I tweet there, but I don't know. Yeah. This is a weak part of the episode, Eliza Monaghan. <laughs> there's a pithier way to say it. I there's mean, there's a surely pithy. a pithier way to say it, but I the think I know what escaping mean. me. Yeah. Yeah. But what about you? Mm, what about me? Yeah. What's next on your docket? Um, I don't know exactly. Do you have an article I'm in the works, a book? Yeah, I've got a couple of um, articles that I'm working on and one about the conferences that I've been to, which I'm excited about um, and can't say really much more about it at the moment. Um, I'm working on an article about uh, beauty standards and kind of the first time women became aware of those expectations and how they reacted to it. Hmm. Uh, like like in the first time in history? Or, or the first no, time? No, like in the first time lives. in your life. Okay, yeah. Huh. Yeah. How is that? How is that? Um, how are you building that article? Is it interviews? Is that where? Uh, yeah. I, I asked for emails. I'm going to have some conversations. Hmm. Yeah. And you're just beginning on that. I'm just starting it. It was something. I mean, it's inherently interesting. It was also particularly interesting to me because it comes up all the time in like trans in you know, narratives of how you know you were trans. It's like, well, when I realized, you know, the first time I put makeup on or the first time I realized that like, you know, there were these expectations around femininity, that it felt like wearing a mask or it felt like playing a part or, you know, it felt really unnatural. And it was like, this is a really common reaction. Like, this doesn't mean you're transgender this means that this is a kind of a you know this is an external thing and the imposition of it is something that people are going to react to in a you know variety of different ways hmm. yeah so, you know I, you you said the one one driver of of uh trans identification for the group that we were talking about in the first half of the conversation was a rejection of self mm -hmm. and the, the one one thing again about this this topic is that it's just it's it's about self rejection and acceptance, but it's also about um, fitting into society. So it's about social expectations, and it's about like like your future, like like where you who you want to become in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just it's just navigating those expectation expectations to the end goal of like being somebody who's in the world. But there's also a rejection of the parent. It's also, a, it's, it's a manifestation of father and mother issues. Like, like how could you deny your sex and not deny your mother and father? Like, like deny the fact that you were born and therefore to deny your existence. Like it's a rejection of God. Mm -hmm. It's rejection of, of order of reality. It's, it's a rejection it's a of very, all these different things. Yeah. It's a very like twisted path to individuation from parents, I think. Yeah. And do you see that manifesting in these forums with these young girls? Um, I mean, identifying as trans really puts fuel on the fire of my parents just don't understand me, which every teenager says and, you know, very deeply feels. Um, so that kind of thing comes up a lot. And now it's like all of a sudden it's not they don't understand me because... I'm trying to grow into an adult and they still see me as their child. It's like they don't understand me because I'm transgender and they hmm. have no possibly relevant human experiences to share with me. 
that's kind of how it plays out. Do you, in general, sense more reaction against the mother or the father? I mean... Or anger? We're talking about, you know, my research being on, on girls. The relationship with mom is going to be kind of central. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, you know, I've just... I've talked to every, you know, parents and particularly mothers from every different kind of like parenting philosophy and ups and downs in family life. And it's, you know, it it's just not really in most cases about the parenting. It's about the belief system and hmm. like it will tear apart any family that it enters. I just I can't. Like, when we're talking about something like very young children with mothers who, you know, like the Munchausen's mothers who are pushing the trans identity, like Jazz Jenny's mom, like Kai Shapley's mom, then we're talking about like, okay, this is like a really pathological mother-child relationship. But when we're talking about teenagers and kids who picked this up online, kids who picked it up in school, like this can hit any family. And I just, like, it's, you know, it's always going to be a little different based on whatever the family situation is, but I just, I can't, hmm. I can't really see it as an issue of, like, bad parenting when it just seems to hit every kind of, yeah. It's a very well-designed virus. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just think parents are in a really impossible position because any kind of pushback, it's like you can't control how your kid is going to interpret that. And they're being told to interpret it in a way where like, if you reject my belief system, which I don't see as a belief system, I see it as my reality, then you're rejecting me. And mm -hmm. You don't care about me. Um, and and I just, I don't know how, it's kind of like, how do you diffuse that bomb before it goes off? I don't know. Hmm. Have, have any um, kids reached out to you? Kids? Uh, um. Like people who decided to detransition and came across your work? Yeah. And people who, you know, I've gotten some interesting messages over time, more from like young adults. Um, hmm. And sometimes they'll write and they'll be really hostile, but it's curious that they wrote it all, you know? Huh. And so sometimes, sometimes I will write back to that and... I, you know, I had interesting experiences with like young women, more than more than one, who would reach out and be like, "Well, you probably don't want me to talk about this this way. Like, you would probably want me to use these other words." And I was like, "You know, I wouldn't want to control the way that you talk about something. I don't talk about it that way because it doesn't let me say the things that I need to say. This is why I use this language. But I'm not going to like tell you how to talk about your experience. And that is a pretty good." Um, mm. 
defanging move because, you know, it's not an attack. It's like you're kind of inviting someone to say, okay, does this actually, wait, does this language actually work for me that I'm using since I'm not being attacked for using it? Mm-hmm. And so I've had, I've had very productive conversations after that kind of like start. And it's kind of the way that I feel about those kinds of conversations is you're basically saying these are these are kids, young people who are so used to being policed for their thoughts and their expressions in trans communities. And I think it's probably kind of a relief to have a private conversation where somebody's like, I'm not going to do that to you. Hmm. And I'm not going to try to impose my beliefs on you. So I've had some interesting conversations like that. And that's why we disagree about Phil. <laughs> I don't even know if we disagree about Phil. Yeah, I don't. I, I know mean, that the community's reaction to it is debilitating toward males' involvement in this movement. I felt, I feel, to a certain degree that AGP is the. Uh, the sacrifice that the island demands kind of like like if in order for this coalition as it stands to continue like there has to be like a seems like that's what is wanted yeah. is a unified front on uh, a vilification of male sexuality uh, on behalf of the feminist contingent in the group and i worry about that i think that that's uh there's it's, very it's str- a very strong will within the movement because it was developed in feminist communities uh, that is against male sexuality and finds it to be a threat, full stop. And that yeah. that attitude cannot be adopted by um, the professional organizations uh, because it's just not, what are we going to do with all these boys? And it's not the feminine. I'm not saying it's a feminist responsibility to deal with the boys or deal with the men. It's not their responsibility, but if they want to control the entire movement and then throw the boys out, like it's not going to work. Like what are, what's going to happen to the boys? What are going to have, what's going to happen? And, and so when Phil shows up with the dress and you start to mind read him, like maybe, maybe you're correct. Maybe you're incorrect. But the way that he was treated is just a stain on the community because now we know that the boys have to stay underground or they're just, they're going to, they are going to get the brunt of a lot of really negative attention. And these boys, I mean, a lot of the boys that get swept up into it, especially the AGP boys are surprisingly, incredibly sensitive men, incredibly sensitive. Yeah. I think they're often sensitive to... I mean, they've been like in the process, they've become highly sensitized to rejection. I I think that there's a risk of over-interpreting what I think a lot of feminists were condemning about Phil. Um, and it's not necessarily, like, I mean, I saw all kinds of criticism. Yeah. Some of it that I thought was overboard and some of it that I thought was dead on and some of it that I thought was, you know, kind of misconstrued by people who um, disagree. And, and I think... Mm. Where I fall on it is, I would not, like, I think that autogonophilia is a real thing. It's really important to understand it. Um, that means we need to talk about it. And that there also probably needs, like, I think that it's generally a good thing to have boundaries, not in the form of a dress code, but in the form of, like, kind of self-policing to, like, just, you know, we can talk about autogonophilia, but we're not going to practice it in public. 
and that that's a good thing. And like, that's a norm that seems like a pretty healthy norm to me. And it is not the same thing as saying, if you're an autogynophilic adult or you're an autogynophilic boy, that we absolutely hate you and like, you have no place. Okay. But I mean, at what point does a man, like what, what shade of blue does he have to not wear? Like, like, how do you actually know? I mean, I no, mean you and, don't, and what you do we don't. do with all the weirdos? There were plenty yeah, of weird, I mean, I have... weirdly dressed women there. We, and nobody's yeah, wearing we booty some... pants, but you know, that there, there's a lot of people with interesting fashion choices. There are people with interesting fashion choices. I mean, I just, I think that a lot of women have had very bad experiences with men who like, and I think that this is part of what autogynophilia when it's being practiced is like, mm. it's crossing women's boundaries and it's making women uncomfortable and like mm. responding to that. I think it's natural that women would react to that and react negatively. negatively. And I think, yeah, I think like, there has there like there certainly is a large middle ground between like can we no i mean can we have like some consideration for other people and some consideration for what's appropriate to be private and what's appropriate to be public and have a wide space for people to be weird in a way that's like you know and I don't know, you know, I mean, that really, like, it really depends on, like, individual people having a sense of, like, self, like, propriety. Yeah. Which we can't count on. Yeah. I don't think that there's a solution other than that. Yeah. Other than, like, yeah. And. It's fascinating, though. It's, yeah, it's interesting. And it's like, yeah, we do need to leave a space for people to be misfit weirdo because, like, gosh, this world is especially full of them. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. And a lot of people got sucked into trans because they were made to believe that there was something wrong with that. And like, mm -hmm. there has to be a distinction between weird and like imposing on other people, something that should be private. Yeah. And I, I wish that, I think it was just a very frustrating um, conversation best not had on Twitter. <laughs> like, like many conversations. Um, uh, did did yeah, you hear what gosh. they did to me? <laughs> they, what did they do to you? Well, one, they accused me of sexual, uh, her uh, being a sexual deviant because I, I suppressed the desire to wave at pretty women. That was one thing. And then they went through my children's album and they reinterpreted it. As like a you pro have a Jeffrey, album? You know, I have I have like a couple hundred children's songs on the internet out there. I have okay. I have you lots have like and lots many, of many many sides. I have a lot of sides, and so they went back. They're like, oh my god, he he agrees with Phil, and Phil agrees with uh, pedophiles or whatever. He must be a pedophile yeah. apologist. And they went through my, they went through a song about a boat show and made it to be about like some pretty awful stuff that's just not there at all. But they were okay. so gunning for me. It's just like the just the depth. So it's hard to have a nuanced conversation when there are certain actors who will just pull it down into okay. just being absolutely vicious about you. And it's like, wow, you're like you're so concerned with other people's thoughts that you're going to read the worst into them. 
Because that's yeah. where it leads. Like, okay. if you're going to start policing people's dress, depending on how they think, then basically what you're doing is policing people's thoughts. That's what you're doing. And you can't do it. There are people out there who have weird thoughts. You know? Yeah. And, like, what are the thoughts actually doing to you? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't... Anytime we get into trying to read people's minds, we're in trouble. And I also, like... So there's that. And there's also, like... As... You know, I've been in... You've been in situations... You described in our last conversation or the conversation before that about being very... um, briskly handled by uh what i believe was a trans-identified male going out of a oh that was a like a protest like getting manhandled at a protest i mean not more so being in situations where like nobody technically did anything wrong but it was very weird and you know why it was weird even though you can't and like you can't make policy on that you can't like you just can't but there is also like I think women can be responding to a real thing of like, Hmm. this is very creepy and not appropriate. And it's also not appropriate in any way that could ever be like, you know, dictated against. No, I mean, there's always the burqa, you know, like there's always the burqa. I mean, that's, that's the other side. That's why I was testing the people who wanted to go along the route of controlling people's dress based on their thoughts. Like, you know, if we're going to do sex based, policing it's gonna end up that the women are the ones who are going to be policed more than men because if we're going to base things I, on male sexuality then it's going to be that's, cover that's up the how woman. it tends to stash go. it that's how it tends to go but it's kind of yeah it's just like i just i really i keep coming back to i i, I hear people you people should be grown-ups people should be grown-ups something should stay at home and those people know what those things are Yeah. I mean, that's just, that's kind of where I end up on it. It's just like... Yeah. And that's why you don't live in California anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One, I mean, one time I was staying at an Airbnb in California oh, and no. the host asked if future guests could come in just to check out the Airbnb. And I was like, I guess so and these two furries came in and measured the bed and i was like whoa (laughs) (laughs) they were dressed up as a duck and a shark and i was just like "Uh, yeah you and your airbnb stories yeah i I feel like airbnb and i are done (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i think you should keep having them four-star hotels from here on out oh yeah yeah right well you you need to get on more of those conference lists yeah eliza mondegreen wonderful to have you back on we've uh we haven't had a one-on-one in a while i think we've uh had some really interesting conversations with uh, other people um so it's good to to get in deep into your your thought processes on this your substack is eliza mondegreen.substack.com you're on twitter as eliza mondegreen um, yep. any plans for a television show on PBS or anything like that? You know, working for the CBC. They said they'd get back to me. Yeah. I yeah. sure, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Cause they love your content. 
Um, yeah. And you already plugged what you're doing. You have a couple articles coming yeah. up. And if women do want to tell their stories about the first time they realized that they were beautiful. Yeah, running into beauty standards for the first time. And what on earth you made of that? Um, yeah. Your DMs out. are open. Yeah. And yeah, my DMs are open. You want to hear about it? In the description. Let's wrap yeah. this up. Okay. Thank you. Bye.